Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by singer-songwriter Arlo Parks. As a teenager growing up in West London with the internet at her fingertips, Parks found inspiration early and often. On the page, it was the poetry of Mary Oliver and Pat Parker. In her headphones, scrolling YouTube endlessly, she discovered Portishead, Joni Mitchell, and Shaw Day. Of course, following in the footsteps of those artists, she began writing. First, diary entries, then poems that would eventually turn into lyrics, and lyrics that would turn into songs, made with a MacBook, garage band, and a whole lot of heart. Parks released her debut single in 2018 at just 18 years old. It was quickly followed up with two EPs and a debut album in 2021 entitled Collapsed in Sunbeams for which she won the Brit Award for Best New Artist and the 2021 Mercury Prize. Her latest project is called My Soft Machine, which was recently released through Transgressive Records. In lockstep with the music that came before it, this new work is marked by vivid descriptions of a Gen Z kid coming of age at the turn of the century. At just 22 years old, she's unflinchingly honest in songs that try to make sense of first love, depression, and young adulthood. We discuss a lot of that in this conversation, but we also talk about her upbringing across the pond, some early tracks made in her childhood bedroom, the inspiration she found in Frank Ocean's Channel Orange, how she kept busy in the pandemic, and where she'd like to go in the years ahead. This is singer-songwriter Arlo Parks. Arlo Parks. Hello. Pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to meet you. How do you uh, feel being here? I feel very excited. I have listened to almost every single episode of this podcast, so it is an honor. Is that true? Yeah. That is so much talk easy. It is a lot, but I feel like I, I don't know, I travel a lot and I feel like podcasts for me are very much something that I listen to when I'm 
in transit and this one really like calms me and I feel like I learn a lot so hmm. well I think today we're supposed to learn a lot about you okay that's great how do you feel about that I feel good okay I want to start with a new record mm-hmm. it's called uh, my soft machine now the title of your debut album collapsed in sunbeams it came from a line in a Zadie Smith book mm-hmm. called on beauty So where does this title come for the new record and and what does it mean to you? Yeah, so it came from this A24 movie that Joanna Hogg directed called The Souvenir. And there's this moment where a character is talking about why we watch films and it's not to see reality as it's played out. It's to see reality as it's experienced through this soft machine, the soft machine being the body and through somebody's eyes and that idea of subjective reality. And I liked, I liked that. And I liked how even in the title itself, there was that sense of light and shade. And I think a lot of the content of the record is about being extremely sensitive and juxtaposed with being very guarded and having moments of numbness and moments of stepping away from it. And like the softness and then the kind of abrasiveness of a machine and just that contrast I thought was interesting. Is that you? Yeah, I think so. Oscillating back and forth? Mm-hmm. Always. You you have this quote, you said, this new record is about the avoidance and anxious attachment and love, the sense of wanting to be numb and push away, then draw someone close. Mm. That is a lot to put into <laughs> one record. Yes. That juxtaposition. It is. And I guess for me, it kind of came through just like showing these little vignettes or scenes that kind of demonstrated that push and pull of things. So since we're talking around the release of this record... That push and pull you're talking about, how does it feel today? I feel like whenever I release a piece of music that is intensely personal, especially a project, I'm very much firmly in that like super emotional, hypersensitive state. Like I feel like I've got no skin on. I feel like everyone is just absorbing and perceiving me. And it's it's quite like a raw state to be in, but I like it. It sounds daunting. It is daunting, but at the same time... I know I've always gravitated towards work that makes me feel that way. And when you can witness somebody feeling that way. It's interesting because in the 18 months that it took to make this record, you spent time performing around the world, opening for Harry Styles and Billie Eilish. I'm wondering, did that time performing for like big stadium size audiences, did it transform the way you approach this record? I think yes, in a way. I think it allowed the record to be a lot more inward and a lot braver in a way because I was faced with, you know, such large audiences and these really high pressure moments, then being in the studio in between that was very much a place for me to put everything that I was feeling because it was these big kind of ebbs and flows of like adrenaline, emotion, being in front of a lot of people. And I kind of went to the opposite side of that extreme when I was writing it and being like, okay, let me just be alone in hermit mode and really kind of mull over what I'm feeling. It seems like, based on this new record, that you wanted to make music that people could dance to, Mm -hmm. perhaps a little bit more than your past work. Mm. Is there a song on this record that you want to play that that kind of is emblematic of that shift towards dance or or something a little more exuberant? I think for me, devotion would be that... I'd always wanted to create a song that was kind of in the vein of Deftones or like My Bloody Valentine, where it's not necessarily dance, but it's more just having that intensity to the music and seeing people kind of crashing and smashing into each other and like just feeling a lot and being really like heightened. And I think that song was a song that I always kind of wanted to make, but never had quite kind of managed to piece together right. So I'd say that song. And now you have. And now I have. Why don't we take a listen to Devotion off of My Soft Machine by Arlo Parks.
do you feel listening to that? <laughs> I feel good. I, I honestly just think about where that song came from. Where did it come from? It came from me driving around with my friends Bed and Ramil, just in this like little red 2001 Suzuki Vitara that like only can play CDs. And we were listening to that song, 17 Days by Prince, and thinking about like the drama of that song mixed with like listening to a lot of Smashing Pumpkins and the Pixies and like, and we thought, why don't we just make a little band for the day in this little studio downtown? And we were just jumping around having fun and it just came out of nowhere. It just came out of the void. And it was just like three people extremely insanely excited about making music <laughs> and being very chaotic. And so it makes me happy. When you were in the room making it, mm -hmm. did it feel chaotic? Yes, but in, a, in the best way. In like best I way. like to just play. Like I like to just be all over the place and just banging on things and having it sound horrible until it sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard for me to imagine it sounding horrible. For a little bit, it does just sound a bit like fragmented and like it's not quite formed yet. But mm -hmm. I learned to be okay with that and give it a bit of time because I'm quite impatient usually. When did you learn to be okay with that? Whilst making this record. Because the first record was very much how it came out was how you listen to it now. But I think with this record, there was a lot more like working off of sparser beats that then, you know, the treatment had to be really considered. Maybe it would be just piano and drums. And I had to think, okay, how am I actually going to craft this into something? Like, what's my vision for it? And there are some things that just take time. So I learned patience there. You know the part in the studio where you're like, oh man, I don't know if this is working. <laughs> yeah. How do you know to keep going? And when do you know to leave it? I don't know. I feel like it's the whole music making process for me doesn't really make much sense. It's all kind of to do with feeling. And I always know when an idea is something that just needs a little bit more time and that I need to step away from it, but it's worth crafting into something. But I can always tell almost from the beginning when I'm like, this doesn't give me that feeling in my gut. Like I don't feel like I won't be able to continue if it's not finished, you know? And mm. I think that's when it, my body and my mind lets me know that I can just let it go. So when you start writing music at the age of 14, mm -hmm. you're growing up in West London, this district of Hammersmith, mm -hmm. writing your first poems and songs uh, either in your bedroom or Bishop's Park. Mm -hmm. What does that period look like now? And did you have that gut feeling back then when it was right? I always had a gut feeling. I don't know. I think back on it really fondly. I think it's when... You just looked off into the distance and started smiling. I know. I was just thinking about like <laughs> tiny me. I and don't you're know. still 22. Yeah, I know. But I was tinier then. <laughs> yeah, honestly, the process is kind of exactly the same. It was always to do with the feeling, whatever that means. And I think that when I was 14 and starting to kind of piece together my first musical works or poetry or like I was writing like plays and short stories and everything, there was always this sense of like looking at the words on the page and it kind of forming the exact right pattern that made me feel good. So what does a 14-year-old Arlo write <laughs> on a park bench? Mm. God, I'm glad that all of those poems have been incinerated because they were not good. Um, we actually have a couple of them here. Uh, no, you don't. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so I think for me, what was I writing about? I think I was writing about the same things that I do now. Writing about like first loves and heartbreaks and melancholy. And the storytelling and the characters was always at the heart of it. I was always really interested in people and my friends around me. So that was kind of mainly it. You had one teacher at secondary school mm -hmm. who said that you should write poetry because you were good at feeling and mood, but not plot. Did that seem encouraging at the time, or were you a little upset by the comment? No, it was completely accurate. Because <laughs> I realized, I was like, I don't really care what happens. I just want to describe it in a very beautiful way. As a kid, I would just read the thesaurus and just make these stories that actually made no sense, but I just was interested in the words. You were reading the thesaurus? I love to, like, ever since I can remember, I love reading the dictionary and the thesaurus. Certain words would just like have a certain color to me almost. Mm -hmm. and I'm like, mm, I like that. I like the disinterest in plot. Mm. That seems to be a through line. Yes. And yet the imagery is pretty striking and vivid. And, and that's always been the way that I write. It's more about 
the kind of nebulous feeling surrounding something and like hyper-specific imagery that you can't really piece together or that there are a million different ways of piecing together. I'm not interested in he walked to the shop and she was there and that's what happened. You know, like I would rather like describe the color of the sky and the leaves and a smile and no one would even know what I was talking about. Why did you, uh, why do you incinerate all the early Arlo works? It's gone. Okay, maybe it's not incinerated, but it's not within your grasp. I've hidden it away. (laughs) (laughs) You're saying that like it's a threat to me. (laughs) You said you had them there. I got scared. I got defensive. Well, you know that we like to pull out, you know, we like to go to the archive. No, 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 no. But I will say we couldn't retrieve it. Good. (laughs) I mean, it's still all on my old computer and I haven't yeah. listened to it in years. But we, we asked your family, but they said no. They said no. Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? God. Uh, when you're making tracks in your bedroom, you're using GarageBand, mm-hmm. uploading some of the songs to SoundCloud, making work that's really inspired by what you've called the vulnerable sensory writing of Channel Orange by Frank Ocean and Six Feet Beneath the Moon by King Cruel. Mm -hmm. But beyond just making the music, is it true that you emailed venues across London asking them to perform on stages? Yes, I did that. I emailed so many record labels, probably something like, hi, my name is Arlo Parks. I'm 16 years old. (laughs) And I love King Cruel and Odd Future and here are some of my songs and just hello like I don't even know what I was asking for (laughs) just acknowledgement I guess but I did play a few shows in London and I would cycle around selling tickets like in physical form from a little envelope (laughs) the part that's endearing but also telling is that you stuck with it Mm. and not only stuck with it but continue to put yourself out there Mm. how did you know to do that I don't know I always think about it as like that urge that a bird has to migrate. It's just like an inner thing that just pulls you in a direction and you're not really sure why. And it didn't feel like a realistic career opportunity to me in any way. It was just something that I love to do and that felt right to do, really. Your first performance comes at a venue called The Basement Door. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Hmm. How did that go? It was interesting. I honestly can't remember it that well but I remember that I had a few of my friends from school and we rehearsed in like one of their parents garages and we played a few of my songs some covers I think I covered like a glass animal song or like some pixie song I can't remember so there were some covers and my friends came there were like 10 people there and I had a great time what did your friends say after the show honestly my friends were my biggest cheerleaders like they were just there in the front and then we just took the tube back home and like got McDonald's and just went on with our lives. But everyone knew it was a thing that I did and everyone showed up for me, which was cute. McDonald's post-show. Mm-hmm. On the tube, it hit, it hit just <laughs> right. <laughs> I love that you remember the meal and the tube and not really the songs. Yeah, my memory is very strangely selective. Like I can remember things in intricate detail, but not much. What do you remember in intricate detail at that time? I think the main thing at the heart of me was how much I loved to write and make music. Like, that was the center of my whole world. Right. I didn't really go out that much. Like, my only focus was sitting on YouTube and watching videos of people performing in the 90s and, like, making strange beats on my computer. Like, that was all I did, really. As a teenager, you once described yourself as A black kid who can't dance for shit, listens to emo music, and currently has a crush on some girl in my Spanish class. Probably true. That sounds right. Well, I saw you dance the other night. No. I thought it was was pretty good. It's more just like, I don't even see it as dancing. I'm just like moving and the music is moving me and I'm not claiming to be good. It's just fun. You did a lot of swaying back and forth. I like to meander. (laughs) That's what I like. That's what I like to call it. Does that description, does that seem right? to you? I guess so. I feel like it encapsulates how I saw myself just like as a queer black person who was inspired by artists who were more eccentric and who kind of stood out in that way. I was watching that Rap Caviar um, documentary on Tyler, the Creator about like how that group of artists inspired like the generation of people like me. 
And I think that's how I felt, like slightly outside of the mold, but confident in it because I could see people around me doing the same thing. One of the reasons I think a lot of people turn to Odd Future, and that includes Tyler and, and Frank Ocean and Earl Sweatshirt, is that they were very much documenting the times they were in, but also the people in their lives very yeah. intimately. And I want to go to the first song you released mm. where you're doing some of that same work uh, in a track called Cola. Can we take a listen? Mm-hmm. Let's do it. How do you feel about that? Oh, I've done it before and I'll do it again. That sounds so excited. <laughs> To my own devices It's better when your Coca-Cola eyes are out of my face I checked your phone and no surprises She's grinning from ear to ear in purple lace So take your pretty good i feel like there's there's a weird nostalgia to listening to it i feel like i've performed it so many times but i haven't listened to it in years i heard that um you wrote that song in 15 minutes yeah but all of my songs that i've written come out in like 15 minutes really yeah it's weird it's like this lightning bolt strikes and it all just comes to me almost fully formed when when you're dropped back into that song Mm -hmm. and that moment of making it what do you see now I remember it being the first song that I was really happy with. I felt proud of. And I think it was quite difficult for me to feel proud of the work that I made. But I remember that being the summer where I first heard Pale Blue Eyes by The Velvet Underground and first listened to Voodoo by D'Angelo and was just like, okay, I'm starting to piece together who I am as an artist. And I remember being so excited about that. What parts of Pale Blue Eyes and, and Voodoo felt like parts of you? I think... Those two in combination, it was like that sense of warmth to the production. In Voodoo, it was the sense of minimalism and like Pino Palladino's bass playing and how there were so few elements, but they were all really considered and just kind of wove together in a beautiful way. I feel like it kind of links to how I feel about House of Cards by Radiohead. It's just that sense of like few elements, but they're all doing such important work. When revisiting your first EP... A super sad generation. You once said about the song, I wrote this after one of those surreal nights with my friends. We were sat in the park. There were tears. People were talking about running away. Why panic attacks happen and sunshine. It made me think about the fragility and the infinity of adolescence. July weather and alcohol does weird things to kids sometimes. So I looked at the friends around me and put fragments of their hopes and troubles together to make this tune. Mm. You're 17, 18 years old at that time, right? Mm-hmm. Was it challenging to separate your experiences from the work? Was it hard to stay present when the present was informing so much of your lyrics? I think that's my endless problem. Because my friends will literally be, will be having a wonderful moment, you know, sunset, driving back from Malibu, whatever, and they're like, we all know you're going to write a song about this. <laughs> like, I'm always taking note and observing and writing down little fragments. And I think it makes it difficult because it's it's a desire to kind of immortalize the moment. And I have that at all times, which means I struggle to sit in the moment itself. And then the moment's gone, you know? It's something I struggle with too. I remember in high school, I would say to friends, this is so silly, but I would say to them, I was like 18, and I remember looking at them once towards the end of summer, right before college, Mm. and I was like, we're going to be nostalgic for this. (laughs) Like, I already knew then, and Mm. I thought, like, what is it about me, but I guess, what is it about you that can't help but look ahead? I don't know. I feel like it's just always been an instinct, and I don't know where it comes from. I think in general, 
not even just in writing, but I'm always somebody who's always looking up the mountain. I'm never focused on where I am. It's always about the next step. I think it's what makes me kind of be really consistent in like working on the work and working on myself. But I think it also means that there's this kind of constant sense of dissatisfaction. Yeah. That's a tough one. Yeah. You know, but in some ways, like your tendency to keep looking up the mountain, mm. I imagine that's how you spend most of your days. But in the 15 minutes that it takes to write one of these songs, maybe that's the moment where you're temporarily suspended mm. writing about a past moment, like in Super Sad Generation, mm. which I would like to listen to with you. Okay. Yesterday I heard you say Everything will sort itself if I get to LA And oh, 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 we're a super sad generation Killing time and losing our paychecks And oh, oh, oh we're a super sad generation Killing time and losing our You know, that was, uh, I think, the first time I saw you sit still with something. <laughs> I, I knew you were going to say that. How'd you yeah. know? I don't know. I think it just made me sad. And I think that, again, I haven't listened to that song in so long. And I think it just makes me think of all the life that was lived in between now and then. Especially being in L.A. now. Yeah, that, that line. And yesterday I heard you say, everything will sort itself. If I get to L.A. Mm, yeah. Was that about you or was that about your friend? I think that was about me. I think it was more of like a speaking to the idea of everything being okay when I kind of attain some kind of like success or like escape to this other place where things seemingly are all right. And it just made me think of that idea of like, me now sitting in what I would have considered the dream and how that feels. That's exactly what I was thinking about because mm. we're sitting in Los Angeles and so much has happened for you. And yet that song is very much part of your past and a person in your past. I don't know. Do these songs, looking back on them now, are they essentially time capsules for you? Yeah, they are. And I revisit them so rarely that like the feeling is really preserved. Like it's really weird. Like listening to it makes me feel like a child in this really weird, vulnerable way. But yeah, it's it's really moving to kind of put myself back into the headspace that I was in when I was making those songs. What headspace were you in at that point? I don't know. I think I was like any teenager, just in that state of like figuring out where your place is in the world. And like navigating the intensity of those feelings and like how when you're in love with someone or they break up with you, it feels like the world is just imploding and like a chasm opens up under your feet and you're like, I'll never love again. I think it, I was very much in the thick of that, especially being a very emotional person. But I think it's beautiful because I also think about that time and it's like that's the time when I realized like how central writing and music was to me and that that was something that I could rely on no matter what and no matter what kind of inner turbulence I was weathering. After the break, more from Arlo Parks. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. 
Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When this EP does what it does, it sets you on this like track and you have all this momentum towards the end of 2019 and, and heading into 2020. And within three days in March of 2020, here is what happens. On March 11th, you perform in Dublin. On March 12th, you post about how your Super Sad Generation Europe tour has sold out and how you're feeling content for the first time in forever. And then the next day, on March 13th, you write a note that pretty much every touring artist had to write at that time, notifying fans that you'd be canceling all of your shows for the foreseeable future because of COVID. That arc in like three days. <laughs> no, I can't believe it was three days. Poor thing. <laughs> Where do you go from there? I just immediately started making my album. I don't like to be still. I felt like I needed to find a different avenue to grow. And I think it was interesting because I always wanted to have a bit of time to really like stew in things and understand what I wanted my first record to be. So literally the day after that, I was like, okay, this is my new task. Like I always have to have a task, a mission. So it was making that record and then I finished that and then it was promoting the record. And then I finished that and then it came out and then I could tour again and now I've made this one. How much of that debut record was shaped by journals you kept from the age of 13 to 18? Pretty much all of it. I think especially because I was making it in the vacuum of the pandemic, there wasn't really much else to draw inspiration from. And I don't know, I had this sense that with the first record, I wanted it to allow people to understand the person that I am now, or the person that I was then, you know? So I just kind of collected all of those notebooks and became really interested in how unreliable memory is and the stories of the people that I'd met. When you're looking at those journals, mm. did they seem like they were written by a different person? Yeah, it, it was really alien to me, especially, you know, being able to follow it right up to the present day and feeling myself slowly becoming <laughs> closer and closer to who I was there. It was really strange. Tell me, when you did dive in, what stood out to you? about the journal entries over the five-year period? I think a big one for me was like the thread in all of the situations that I'd lived 
of my desire to heal and fix people and how that almost never worked out if someone wasn't willing to bring that from within themselves. That was a really interesting thread. And it was like different people. It was just like a pattern that I noticed in myself. But I think I just had this very profound, whenever I saw somebody needed help, something just pulled me towards them and I couldn't almost help myself from being there to listen and giving as much energy as I had to them, no matter who it was. Not necessarily just to close friends, just like to anyone. And then I think I just felt how much that was taking from me and I was like, hmm, to keep a bit back for yourself, you know? That tendency to, uh, to help people, it's very much the heart and soul of a song called Black Dog. We could play it, but I, you've not really enjoyed hearing your old song, so I'm reluctant to play it for you. Hearing my music, honestly, it just brings up a world of critique in my mind. Okay, great. So why don't we play it? <laughs> and then you can critique it. Thank you. <laughs> this is from Collapse and Sunbeams. The song is called Black Dog by Arlo Parks. What's your, uh, what's your critique? I mean, there are endless ones. I feel like that's the... Please, why don't you tell people no. what's wrong about a song that they love? No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to ruin <laughs> it for no, them. I'm just curious. What, what does stand out to you, though? Good and bad. Okay, I'm going to be positive because I want people to not have to listen to me critiquing myself. They come to you for honesty. No, exactly. I know. And I'm going to be honest about the good things. <laughs> um... What are you, a politician? I, yes. Um, no. I, no. <laughs> I think that one of the things that I like about this song is, I know I've been reading a lot of Annie and Nile books, and there's something about the sparseness and the directness of the writing. I just like the fact that the appeal is, like, I'm appealing to this person and it's so direct. The first verse has a bit of that abstraction and then it's just kind of peeled away almost immediately and that's what i like about this song and i like that it's helped people and that people seem to cling to it and especially because it came out in the pandemic i think a lot of people were in the darkness in that moment but it was written specifically from one friend of yours mm -hmm. it's funny that even in the work your tendency to want to help i think it it contributes to the work i mean it's just part of who i am yeah right? Hmm. Something that I've learned, I guess, over time is just kind of keeping energy and compassion back for yourself is healthy. There needs to be balance. There were moments where I spent a lot of time and energy on people who kind of soaked that up and weren't returning that same compassion. I mean, based on what I understand, this record comes out in 2021 Mm -hmm. A handful of these songs, including Black Dog, become these kind of pandemic anthems. The work is successful. It propels you out into the world, onto stages, a couple Grammy nominations, those gigs we talked about in the beginning, opening for Billie Eilish or Harry Styles. You play Coachella, Glastonbury. And yet by the end of last year, in the fall, it does seem like you were worn out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I live my life on the edge of burnout, which is not good. <laughs> and I think that I kind of have ever since I was 17. So I got used to being on that edge of things. And then I think especially going from that kind of hermit mode of the pandemic and suddenly being 
thrust into the world. It just threw me out of balance in a very profound way. You wrote on Instagram when you canceled some of your tour. You said, uh, I find myself now in a very dark place, exhausted and dangerously low. It's painful to admit that my mental health has deteriorated to a debilitating place, that I'm not okay, that I'm a human being with limits. When you posted that, did you ever read the comments of, of what people said? I didn't I didn't really read the comments. I read the messages that kind of came in after that, but honestly I posted it and then I just had to get off my phone. I read them this morning. Mm. There's not one person that isn't in your corner and supportive of that choice. Mm. I don't know. I think it says something about the time we're in that that acceptance. Like everyone feels it in some way. Definitely, and I feel I don't know, I feel like the community I've built around myself is a compassionate one and an empathetic one. And I know that the people that are commenting from the internet aren't even necessarily <laughs> fans of me or not particularly kind, but it's nice to know that people were on my team, for sure. When we were talking about the first record, it was very clearly born out of the past and these journal entries. And in many ways, it made sense because it was the pandemic. Yeah. Like, the future seemed pretty uncertain. Mm. So you kind of had nothing else to look at but the past. Does this record feel like a chapter turn for you? Definitely. I think you can hear it sonically. I think you can hear it in the words. I think that there's a sense of looking outwards and outside of the bubble of what people might expect from a second record and just showing more of myself as I was moving through the world, you know, in that 18 month period, rather than talking about the things that had affected me in the past and the residue of that, it was more about, there was a bit more presence. Mm. Are you feeling that in this moment? I struggle to be present, but I'm, I feel, I feel like I'm dipping in and out of it, which is good. <laughs> And not in a way that I'm not listening. It's just I find it really hard to switch off my thoughts and be sitting still and listening. And it doesn't mean I'm not listening. It's more that everything you ask me rattles off a million different branches of where I could go with it. And I have to pick one. Okay, so why don't we stick with present, mm -hmm. you in this moment. Yes. Like this record's coming out. You made this new thing. You're about to go back on the road. How does that feel to you? It feels good. And I can say that from an earnest place. I think there's something so exciting about being able to put out an album that feels just exactly how I want it to be. It feels like I wouldn't change anything. I feel like my critical mind is kind of switched off, at least for the moment. No critiques? Not for now. And that's not to say it's perfect. More just that I feel like it's the best that it could be at this moment. When you were 14 and you started writing in your bedroom. You had like a $30 microphone mm -hmm. and you wrote, as you say, as if no one was listening, in part because- No one was. No one was. <laughs> and yet now people are, and you're writing for not no one, but a whole audience that's waiting. Mm. How do you hold on to that thing that got you into this when those conditions have changed? I don't know. I feel like writing for me has always been a very insular and private practice. And that when I'm writing, I'm just not really thinking outside of the room. The 15 minutes. The 15 minutes of presence, honestly. It's like all I can think of is the melodies just shooting into my brain like lightning. And maybe afterwards, there's more of a sense of awareness of, okay, this is going to go beyond these four walls and I'm going to have to deal with how vulnerable that feels but in the moment it's just like everything's colliding and it feels great well if that's the case mm -hmm. then uh, as we leave what bit of collision do you want to hear at the end here I think the song Puppy because it has my favorite song in the album which is that thing at the end that sounds like a guitar but it's actually the synth that Buddy has and it's a tiny little box and we were listening to Loveless a lot and I wanted it to end with this. This is the song Puppy off the new record, My Soft Machine. My Soft Machine. Machine. <laughs> By Arlo Parks. 
talk about a couple lines in the work because we have to go soon. You write, um, August was a day's hell and heaven all at once, spilling out the duplex, lacerated by first love. It's funny, you know, that teenager that was sitting on the park bench writing poems about first love, pieces of poetry that are apparently incinerated. Thank you. <laughs> You at 21, 22, coming back to the same well of heartbreak and falling in love and in and out of love. Mm. Does it feel different now, writing about it at this age than it did back then? I think yes and no. I think a part of what allows me to write is that I feel like I always feel things as intensely as I did when I was a teenager. Everything still like completely rocks me and... I just feel like I'm always going to be ultra sensitive. And I think that, I don't know, I'll never tire of coming back to different kinds of love and different kinds of ways that I break my own heart and other people do. I feel like it's always going to be in those two realms in some kind of way. Isn't that tendency, which is bordering on masochism, <laughs> isn't that kind of why these songs work? Hmm. Like, you are sensitive to the moments in your life so much that you want to endlessly immortalize them so much so that you can't drive back from Malibu with your friends without really writing a song in the process isn't the aim then I mean I'm asking but isn't the aim then to protect that part of you that is sensitive that the world does a very good job of kind of beating out of all of us yeah. as we get older mm. like isn't that why you took the break that you did mm. I guess so. I feel like I'm not really sure why I do things. I'm just following the feeling as I am in, in all the things that I do. The motivation isn't clear. It just feels right when I do and when I don't. Mm. On that, what do you do next? I don't know. I, I feel like there are a lot of creative avenues that I want to venture into over my life. As we talked about before, I love a challenge. I love to be a student. I just have like, I like just approaching things that I have no idea how to do and learning about them slowly from people. You're 22, right? Yeah. Okay, so if we do this again when you're 25. Okay, that's not too long. Why don't we put some things on the record Okay. that we can listen back to in three years? Okay, in three years. Mm, that's not loads of time. So I better not get too ambitious. You know, knowing you, I think you can get ambitious here. Three years is not that... Okay, well, I hope that I've done another album... I hope that I've done something in the film world, whether it's writing a script or it's helping to score a movie or acting in something, something in the film world. And I hope that I have read more books than ever before and that I am still happy doing what I do. Those are the four things. I hope all those things for you as well. Thank you. Until then. Until then. Arlo Parks, a pleasure. Sam, a pleasure. Great. We did it. We did it. That's our show. 
I want to give a special thanks today to Emily Mullen at Orienteer, the good people at Transgressive Records, our guest Arlo Parks, and my father. He was the first one to recommend the music of Arlo Parks to me, and as always, he was right. So, much love to him and his endless good taste. If you want to check out Arlo's new record, My Soft Machine, it's available wherever you get your music. We'll be including a link to that album and more at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode with Arlo, I'd recommend our talks with Lord, Deb Hines, Kevin Abstract, David Byrne, Janelle Monet, Ben Staples, and Brittany Howard. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our research and production assistant is Paulina Suarez. Today's talk was edited by C.J. Mitchell and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editor is Clarice Guevara. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs today are by Simi Malik. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Kaylin Ung. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Julia Martin, John Schnars, Kerry Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Tara Machado, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here on Sunday with a new episode featuring actor, director, and comedian Rami Youssef. Until then, stay safe. Until then. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids, no plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.